let us know where it went and all this kind of stuff. Well, because of that, now we, every year we get a catalog and it gives us all kinds of options of things that we can do. We can just, you know, give them a lump sum and designate, but there's all kinds of different things like, you know, you can buy them a goat, you can donate $50,000 and they can build a hospital, all this kind of stuff. So the catalog is out there and it's pretty cool. I like that a lot. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay, we ready to go back there? Okay, all right. Welcome, my name's Pat Milligan. I'm filling in for uh, Pastor Chris today. And uh, kind of going off track, we've been talking about Joseph lately, but I'll leave that to him. Um, one of the biggest thrills of my life was the opportunity I got a chance to go to Southeast Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, and just about every class I had was just held me spellbound. Just fascinating stuff. Um, I learned about theology, hermeneutics, surveying Old and New Testament, and just on and on and on and on, things like that. Just loved every minute of it, and it made the gospel come alive for me. I learned things that had never been talked about before in any of the churches I'd gone to, so I got a lot more deeper into the rabbit hole. And it only strengthened my faith, and it put me on a road that allowed me to finally bring my life together after about 50-plus years. Um, as I was going through life, wandering for decades, vainly looking for some sort of purpose of what I thought God wanted me to do. If you want to look at my resume, you'll see that there's a lot of divergent thoughts about what I worked, you know, where I worked, what I worked, and things like that. So I was, I was pretty much uh, just wandering aimlessly for a long time. Uh, but one of the other things that is unexpected about that is, is it had a lot of history involved in it. And it applied history all across the board in all these different disciplines, and it just, it just made every class even that much more. Um, unfortunately, I, the curriculum that I had did not have church history as part of the study. Um, and for those of you who know me, I love history. I mean, I love history. If you look in my den, I have hundreds, I'm not kidding, hundreds of books on history. And I read history books for kicks. Um, one of the things I'm reading right now is a six-volume Winston Churchill history of the Second World War, which is not for, you know, it's not your typical reading. Um, but like I said, history is all over the, the curriculum of seminary, and it played into my strengths. And even though I didn't have a ch church history class, I still had books that I could refer to about it that I'd just picked up over time. Um, and studying and reading history made me the man that I am today, full of boring facts and details that nobody really cares about. <laughs> but I am definitely the man when it comes to Trivial Pursuit. You want me on your team. Now, throughout history, there have been all kinds of clashes of differences in beliefs and religious dogma since Eve woke up Adam on the second day that they were together. You put two people together and you get two different ideas. It's just inevitable. And this is also the case with Christianity as soon as Jesus ascended into heaven. Almost immediately, the message started to get bastardized. And so the apostles worked together to maintain the integrity of the gospel amidst all of this opposition and an expansion. And as the years turned into decades after Jesus died, the word was spreading throughout the Roman Empire, and with it came the inevitable mutation of that message. And also during this period came Paul, a former Pharisee and persecutor, 
very well thought of in the Jewish world. Proclaiming the gospel is given to him by Jesus and reconciled with Peter. So now you got that mind-blowing experience. Now, Paul was painfully aware of the dissension and the disparate messages that were out there being passed around by these fledgling churches. And so he strove to get everybody on the message that was left by Jesus with him. So what we're looking at today is Paul's epistle to the Philippians, where he addresses these differences of thought in the Philippian church and his attempt to bring these beliefs back in line with the true gospel. He also reminds the church of Christ Jesus' voluntary sacrifice to our benefit, and Jesus requests that we be servants to others. And these are good words to live by, especially in today's environment. Now for this moment in history. Philippi in the first century BC was a prosperous, important city in the Roman Empire. Philippi had recently been elevated to the status of colonial city in Rome, which gave the population numerous legal and financial benefits that weren't out there for every just little mud hut village. And also, because of that status as a colony, it gave it a growing civic pride. Now, first, uh, Paul first visited Philippi in his second missionary trip about 50 AD, after receiving his Macedonian vision, as was mentioned in Acts 16.9. Now, Paul and his traveling companions, Luke and Timothy, soon arrived at Philippi. There he found a small, poor Jewish population with no synagogue, meeting only at a gathering place near a river. This weak Jewish influence in the area allowed him to establish his church on the down low with little outside distractions or opposition. And the Jewish population was poor, but they were also very dedicated to Paul and his word. However, soon after the church began to grow, the external forces of bias and persecution began to get wind of what was happening, and a movement started to take shape. False teachers and Judaizers started to stir up trouble between the Jews and the Gentiles of the church. And Paul was informed of this dissension and conflict arising among the Philippians of the church, and he became very concerned. Paul wrote this epistle to address the issues of heresy, disunity and false teachers and encourage them to unite in Christ and look to serve each other. And this message can be directly relayed into our lives as well to support and love one another and model Christ's behavior in serving each other. Now the section we're looking at today is in regards to Paul's plea to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2 verse 1 through 11 known as the humility of Christ. And here's what that says. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than ourselves. Everyone should look out, not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he came as a man in his form, 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of, of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, in my opinion, if there was one passage in the Bible that incorporated all the elements of who Christ is and our relationship as his Father, this is it. And I'll get into that in a second here. Now, this can easily be broken down into three parts. Philippians 2, 1 through 4, which is our call to serve. Philippians 5 and 8, what Jesus had to undergo and leave behind to be our sacrifice. And verse 9 through 11, the exaltation of Jesus as the Christ and his confirmation as the ultimate being in the universe. The first part is Paul's plea to the Philippians to change their heart from inward to outward to serve each other. This is also Paul's appeal to the Philippians to look at themselves and find the qualities that show they are of the same frame of mind as Jesus with the attitude of service and sacrifice that Jesus tried to impart upon his believers. This is an attitude of encouragement, love, participation, or partnership with the Spirit, projecting affection and sympathy towards others. Now, Paul is also implying that by if the Philippians fulfill his wishes and achieve this objective, it would fill him with great joy and happiness. More than that, he adds that this would also put everyone on the same sheet of music, moving in the same direction, this uniformity of attitude is compared to Jesus' mindset of servitude and loving kindness, a benchmark to make sure that everybody is striving to the same level of love as the supreme instrument of love, Christ Jesus. In verse 3, Paul now challenges the Philippians to take their attitude of love and add to that serving others. He implores them to exchange their selfish ambitions and self-centered focus and turn it outwards. He is asking them to look to others and serve them selflessly and not be wishy-washy. This, Paul implies, can be done by looking at others as more important than themselves. He reiterates this in verse 4, giving this idea additional emphasis. For further clarification, you can also look at Matthew 22:39, which states, love your neighbor as yourself. But what is this encouragement in Christ that we're talking about? If you look back at, if you look back at the humility and exaltation, you have their consolation, but you can make better sense with an alternative Greek definition of comfort, seeking comfort in Jesus, and that would turn that opening segment into comfort in Christ, and this comfort would be from knowing Jesus as Christ, and the joy of being a part of His flock. At the same point, this point of knowing Christ might also serve to want to model that type of love as a litmus test for the believer if you are truly filled with the Holy Spirit. Along the same lines, the comfort found in love sounds like someone comforted as being a recipient of Jesus' love, which through the receipt of the Holy Spirit should fill us with affection and sympathy for others as well. One would expect this of true believers in Christ Jesus anyway, 
given the message that he brought and the message that he served. Paul points to this by saying, here is a list of the virtues that Jesus had. This is necessary for us to have as well. We must think about this laundry list of, of qualities that we should all have and make acquiring them at the forefront of our lives. You can also see this in the Gospels during the Last Supper. Luke 22, 26, and 27 says, But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. This subservient servant issue is also addressed in John 13 with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Now, for another moment in history, this time in social context. At the time of the Bible, people primarily made their way around by walking. And whether they had barrels, barefoot or sandals, their feet became dirty, smelly, and generally nasty. There was no sanitation in the, in the ancient world, so when the apostles went to the Last Supper, essentially, they had to walk through what was the Last Supper from the night before. And I'll spare you the details. If you want to know more, you can, you can hunt me out later, and I'll give it to you. Thus, when someone arrived at another's house, it was customary for the owner of the house to have the feet of his visitors washed mostly by a slave. And this is generally viewed by, viewed by the Jews as near the bottom of the list of nasty things that you had to do. But Jesus did so as a teaching point where he showed them that their behavior should duplicate his, performing an otherwise humiliating task as a means to serve others. The servile posture by Jesus is what I see as second only important importance only to Jesus' sacrifice. In doing this for his disciples, he demonstrates that in order to mimic Jesus' actions and behaviors, you have to put others ahead of yourself. Reiterating this submissive servant theme is also seen in Mark 10, 45 But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Moving on. In the second section, Paul takes on the mentality of Christ's loving kindness and extends it further. He reminds the Philippians that Jesus voluntarily came down in human form, having veiled his glory so he could take up the mission that God had given him as a sacrifice of our benefit. Paul is asking the Philippians to put themselves in Jesus' head and see what he was thinking. We know that Jesus was part of the Trinity and had all the powers that God and the Holy Spirit had, but the difference is that Jesus saw this glory that he had as an impediment to his mission. Thus, Jesus willfully emptied himself, a process known in, as the Greek word kenosis, so he could take on the mantle of humanity coexist with us and perform the task that he was given. So Jesus was born and took on the likeness of man, humbling himself and starting a string of events that he knew would end in his crucifixion and death on the cross. This was all so that we could benefit by his death and resurrection. Now for your daily theology geek moment. Now what is this part about emptying himself? There are a few different ways to determine what Paul meant. In this context, it can best be known that Jesus knew his glory would best be held on to 
keeping him on par with God and the Holy Spirit in terms of glory, but he also knew that he could not finish his mission if he didn't veil or shield this glory as the Son. He had to undergo this great transformation from divine to human to accomplish his mission. But this emptying was not depriving himself of this glory, leaving a box in heaven for him to grab later, but only concealing it from others. This way, he could make his way through his ministry on earth with us. Now, since Jesus was part of the Trinity with all the properties of God and his holiness, it would be impossible for us to interact with him unless he didn't perform this act of kenosis. There are numerous examples where God spoke with someone and told them that if they saw God in all of his glory, they would die. And there are also numerous mentions of just merely angels speaking with people who fell to the ground terrified at what they saw unless they altered their appearance. So it's not going to do any good if we can't see him and interact with him without dying, and it obviously is going to defeat his mission. So that was a necessity that he veil himself so that he could be with us. Now back to our story. With Jesus now 100% human and still 100% divine, it was possible for him to perform this final task. Jesus came to the earth because we were not capable of being with God on our own accord. Jesus knew that and accordingly volunteered himself as the sacrifice without blemish. When God passed the law to Moses, the part that covered sacrifice was pretty detailed on what would suffice for the atonement of the sinner in regards to their sin, almost like a menu. For example, in looking over Leviticus 4.27, the law specifies that the sin offering for a commoner is a female goat or a lamb for unintentional sin. Now, at the time, the cost of a goat or a sheep was about three denarius or three days' wages. But your financial punishment was actually more than just the mere cost of the animal. Also lost is that the female goat could give birth and raise young. So in actuality, the loss of a female goat could go really deep, adding in the value of the lost young that you could have sold or bred into the future. And this is just one example placed on the atoning of sin. So looking back at Leviticus, and I'm sure many of you look through Leviticus on your free time, you see that the greater the sin, the greater the cost. But what would be the cost in the sin of the entire nation? The cost of sin from all mankind from since Adam and Eve, and the cost of the sin from every person yet to come. How can you calculate this? We can't. God can. He determined the cost of absolving the world of sin as his only son, Jesus of Nazareth. Who else would be a sufficient sacrifice? He was sinless, perfect, spotless. And for those of you who work with animals, you know spotless is always a greater value because it's harder to find and it is such a rarity. And since Jesus was the only one on earth without sin, his one-of-a-kind status would be priceless. This was the cost of washing away our sins, a priceless, immaculate, one-of-a-kind sacrifice. This sacrifice, however, would entail suffering, the insufferable, tolerating the intolerable, 
undergoing the ultimate humiliation, naked and alone. However, according to W.W. Wearsby, exaltation always follows humiliation. That's a little teaser for the next section coming up. In this last section, Paul reminds the Philippians of the greatness of Jesus and God's response to Jesus' completed mission. God validates Christ's mission of completion and honors him by exalting Jesus and bestowing on him the moniker of unsurpassed magnitude. He does this so that everyone will know that Jesus succeeded in performing his task as sacrifice for all of mankind and that his actions are without equal. The implied message of his exaltation is transmitted to every element of our universe so that whoever hears the message knows that without a doubt Jesus has scaled the pinnacle and that no other can or will surpass him. This message is also meant to penetrate all of the realms. With Paul's statement in verse 10, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, he is making a direct statement to those in heaven, living on the earth, and most importantly, to those citizens of Satan's world. This status is also to be acknowledged by them, whether they like it or not. With God placing the name of Jesus at the apex, he is telling everyone that Jesus is to be revered and that he is without equal. This seems to be a no doubt about it proclamation that Jesus is the highest and to reinforce the successful result of his mission on earth. This combined with verse 6 confirms Jesus in his position as part of the Trinity. This also points to not just the Philippians, but also to all of mankind now unveiled he was who he said he was with all of the divine capabilities associated with that exalted status. I know it's kind of redundant. I keep going back and saying, you know, Jesus is the apex. He's the pinnacle. He's the ultimate. But he is. So why not proclaim that as many times as we possibly can? With Paul also directly addressing Satan and his followers, he is telling mankind that Satan and his followers have been put on notice that Jesus has power over all of Satan's empire. This should give comfort to those who are concerned about spiritual warfare and by extension, their own future salvation and the end times. This would also be important to the people of the time since the Gospels had not been written yet. Philippians was written sometime in the late 50s and the Gospels really didn't start coming out and get widespread for another 10, 20 years. So it would not be assumed that everyone knew about the instances where Jesus showed power over these demons by casting them out in those numerous instances in the Gospels. Nevertheless, verses 10 and 11 should have provided comfort to those who read or heard the word that Jesus is Lord over all aspects of God's universe. This is a lot of heavy to take in, I know. But what does that mean for us? In relation to what I just said, we can rest assured that there is no other above Jesus, as Paul pointed out. This should also give us peace of mind to know that there is no more powerful than Jesus. A million years ago, one night in Bible study, my then-girlfriend spoke with a pastor and told him that she was afraid that Satan being let loose on the earth was going to take things over 
and that she was at risk of that as well. And so he calmed her down, and he introduced her to 1 John 4, 4, which said, You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because he who is within you is greater than he who is within the world. That should allow us to rest comfortably at night, knowing that Jesus is more powerful than anything or anyone above earth, on earth, and below the earth. And if you want that, you can also look at Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Needless to say, that did calm my girlfriend down, and myself as well. Now, the focus of this passage is about us being of the same mind and spirit as Jesus in regards to serving each other and comforting each other. Going back to Deuteronomy 6.5, we are to love each other as ourselves and not to place others above others. Jesus carried the serving attitude knowing what his fate would be. He did this willingly to glorify God. Now, how much easier should it be for us? We're not at such a risk to lose our lives for helping others. And yet it says, and many of the military people as well know, there's no greater love hath man than to lay down his life for another. Who here would not stop and help someone who fell down? Who would not help someone who is overburdened with grocery bags coming out of a store? Who would not help someone who needs direction somewhere? Shouldn't we help to console someone who has lost a loved one? And should we only limit ourselves to mothers and mothers with children? Senior citizens or those who are physically or mentally impaired? No. We should look to anyone who is in need of help of any kind, whether it is helping someone across a busy street or someone in need of shelter. For in Matthew 26, 35, 40, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And this is what Jesus was getting at, that we should help those in need wherever we find them. And when did Jesus say to do these things? From the day after Thanksgiving through New Year's Day only? He meant for us to serve our neighbors every day regardless. Loving and serving others is a year-round objective that Jesus asked his followers to pursue, and it is something that we should do as well. We should feel the Holy Spirit driving us towards loving, caring, and comforting others. We should aspire to model Christ's behavior, in essence, live as Christ, so that we may glorify God as Christ did. Now you see in front of you the annual Christmas child box waiting for us to take hold of the reins. Just don't stop there. Look around at your neighbors, your friends, and strangers as well, from January 1st through December 31st. Lord, we thank you for your message of love and comfort that we get through your son, Jesus. 
We thank you for the compassion and the service that he showed us, and we ask you to fill our lives with the opportunities for helping others and to fill our hearts with the drive and the desire to do so every day of our lives so that we may glorify you and hopefully inspire others to do the same. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. Amen.